Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Lamine Zarad is the SVP of Financial Services at Zen Business, a public benefits corporation that provides end-to-end digital tools for very small businesses in the service sector, including many solopreneurs. He began his entrepreneurial journey after immigrating to the United States, after which he went to serve on in the United States Marines. He subsequently built an expertise around banking, regulations, and financial services. They work at Merrill Lynch and U.S. Treasury's Office of the Comptroller of Currency. With Zen Business, Lamine combines his passion for inclusion with his banking skills to create Zen Business money. Hey, Lamine, welcome to the One Away Show. Hey, Brian, good to be here, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming on and uh, excited. Been excited for this for a while. Uh, you know, I would love for you to share, Lamine, the the One Away moment that you want to talk about today. I find your story very incredible and. You know, no idea what you're going to say right now, but uh, I'm going to hand the mic over to you. That's awesome. So do you want me to start with like a personal story and, uh, and as it relates to my professional progress and all that good stuff? Whatever, can... whatever is coming okay. up for you, I fully support right now. Fantastic. Yeah. So I, I always I like to start my personal story. You know, professional rapper on our lives is it's just that, right? It's a rapper. It's part of the life, but it's it's the external sort of output of you know, what, what's inside of you and, and what's inside of you is a compilation of all these experiences uh, that you've had in life. So even in interviews, when I ask folks that question, I want to know who they are because that reflects in your work. And so um, I am uh, also a product of my experiences that, that are, I would say pretty unusual, I think, for the most part for by any measure. Uh, my childhood and my origins are, uh, in the country no longer exists. Um, the country of USSR, right, the Soviet Union. My mother is from uh, now a country of Azerbaijan. Back then it was one of those republics of the USSR. And uh, my father is from Tunisia, North Africa, and then met while he was studying there, and uh, which is by, you know, by the way, very unusual as well. Uh, and uh, in, in any case, I was born in Baku, which was the capital of Azerbaijan, and I had a very privileged childhood where unlike my fellow citizens in the Soviet Union, I was able to travel outside of that country. So the, the, the borders were not locked for me because of my father. And so I was, uh, you know, I spent summers in Tunisia on the Mediterranean. I came back, you know, usually during the rest of the year and studied uh, all, all up until I was, uh, until I was 10 years old uh, in 1989, 1990, when the Soviet Union fell apart. So typically when you hear about the USSR story, it is, it's the opposite for most people where they've suffered under Soviet regime and then post-Soviet regime, you know, they're, uh, they're sort of free. For me, it was the opposite. Um, Soviet rule, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was far away from uh, Azerbaijan, so it, was, it wasn't as stringent there, but it created stability. And it created stability as it relates to, you know, ethnicities living together, coexisting, uh, different religions that, you know, religion was outlawed, but people still practiced, you know, uh, in private and so forth. Everyone sort of coexisted in harmony. And then when that veil was lifted, 
people went back to sort of their old tribal ways and um, various ethnic minorities were driven out. And uh, my mother's half Armenian and Armenians were one of those target uh, groups. My mother's half Azeri, half Armenian, which is an interesting combination. That's these are the people who are fighting and killing each other over a piece of barren land. That's absolutely mind blowing. Anyway, long story short, uh, we fled uh, when I was 10 uh, on the train to Moscow and, uh, and spent six years refugees, which was uh, completely radically, you know, different experience. It was a complete 180, you know, from that privileged existence where my family could afford nice things. And, you know, I did, I did all kinds of extracurricular activities and yada, yada to now being completely poor. We had fled with like a bag of clothes and, and that's it. No money, nothing, uh, no savings. <laughs> and, um, and ended up in Moscow in 1990 when there was no social safety nets of any kind. There was like no programs. There's no housing, we had to find housing. And so a bunch of us got together and moved into this dilapidated uh, lithium processing plant, basically. There's a bunch of laboratories that were abandoned uh, post-Soviet state. And, uh, and, and we just kind of moved in and made home uh, in, in those uh, facilities for six years. And in that time, this is where I truly learned my entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I always sort of, I was always a natural entrepreneur. I did crazy stuff like buying hamsters in. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, and a pet store, feeding them for a couple of weeks, fattening them up and then trying to resell them. Uh, never worked out for me <laughs> as a business. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I was, I was like eight and seven. But so here in Moscow, like I had to actually make something that worked out so, to make money. Uh, I couldn't buy hamsters. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, I got into like bootlegged VHS tapes, right? So that, that kind of uh, times me, that ties me to that era. And that worked out and sold them like on the markets and did all kinds of stuff like that. You're, you were still in Russia at this point. In Russia, yeah. Okay. Breaking all the laws, doing all the things you weren't supposed to do. I mean, there were no laws, right? Like it was middle, middle of the 1990s. There was no rule of any kind. Uh, it was free throws, complete anarchy. People, this is when oligarchs rose because they're able to like consolidate all those resources and, you know, take shit and build stuff. <laughs> Um, this is when a lot of people went completely broke. Uh, many died in that time, uh, and uh, and you know you had to figure things out for yourself. It was it was like you know pure Darwinism, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, in, in those situations, you know you, if you have any sense of resilience, this is where you um, you're going to hone it. And, uh, and and we did. And so anyway, long story short, we figured out a way to escape, and uh, and we came to U.S. United States gave us, uh, you know, the the permission, but not the resources or the means to get here, uh, and so we we basically crossed seven borders with with fake paperwork uh, across Europe into Germany, then into Netherlands, and then came to U.S. from from Amsterdam. So that's like my childhood. That's that's the foundation. Uh, I was 16 when we came to U.S. Uh, the foundation of everything that I am, right? All those experiences. So Lamine, th thanks, thanks for sharing all of that. And, and Mike, so you lived in a lithium, uh, lithium processing plant uh, that you mentioned. And my question is, you know, it takes a lot of fortitude to go through what you were doing back at the time. How are you thinking about maybe your life? Was it, let me just get through each day or were you mapping out, you know, this master plan, this better plan for yourself to get out of Russia and eventually escape. I mean, I'm curious what your mindset was and how you were kind of thinking about each day at the time. Yeah, of course. 
So imagine living in those conditions. This is like drab 19, you know, 60s uh, rectangular Soviet buildings where laboratories existed at one point and they were abandoned post dissolution. And you're in those conditions, you're thinking about survival every day. Um, but really what you're also thinking, or at least feeling every day is that I don't want to be here. <laughs> and that is a, that is a huge motivator, right? Like not want to accept the, the reality, uh, in a sense that you want to be somewhere else. I had no idea. Like I didn't have a master plan. Uh, I don't think people in, in situations like that, uh, have master plans. I think what you need to have is a desire, a strong drive to like figure out a way out, right? You're, uh, you sort of like treading water, looking for, you know, next raft that floats you away so you can jump on it sort of a thing. And uh, you're not thinking, all right, if I swim 100 meters, you know, at this bearing and then take a ride. Right, <laughs> I'm gonna right. make it. Yeah, it's, it's mostly about treading water. It's mostly about making it through the day. And honestly, that's entrepreneurship, right? You may have a vision and visions are important, but really the companies that survive much like people uh, survive because of resilience and because of just just being around long enough, <laughs> and uh, and something comes along. And you know, I think there's a saying that if you, um, you know, I, I don't want to misrepresent it, but if you want something really bad, the universe will conspire, you know, to get you there. And uh, and and what that means is that you just got to stick it out long enough, and you have to be creative, and you have to constantly optimize. You have to yeah. constantly like look at your environment. All right, these are the conditions. How do I optimize them? Okay, the conditions have changed. How do I optimize now, right? Kind of a thing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's it. But um, yeah, and then you eventually, when you have some stability, start thinking more long-term. And that's, uh, that's kind of my strategy anyway. So I, I love this. And I think this is so powerful for maybe the younger entrepreneur who might be listening right now is this idea of treading water. I mean, what, what if, let's just say there was a, a for you, take, you know, do you think about your experiences where you've just treaded or even in your business with what you're doing, which we can get to at the end. And I'd love to share that. Um, how do you tread water effectively? How do you stay strong, have grit, and then the fortitude to keep going forward? What are things or processes that you find yourself kind of going through, you know, when these situations come up? Because I'm sure they happen now too. Not like life is perfect just because you're in the U.S. now, but... Um, yeah what what how do you how do you navigate these scenarios when they come across your life yeah so first you start with a mindset right i think it's important probably one of the most important things is to have the mindset of resilience which you know means many different things to many different people what to me it means uh is basically refusal to accept what you have now right it's not, never enough and not in a bad way right but saying that i i i'm grateful for what i have but i want to be there so that's, that's one thing. Um, refusal to give up when you're not there. You constantly keep looking for new ways. Uh, flexibility to change your direction. Because you know if you're beating your head against the wall, the chances are you're probably going to break your head and not the wall. And you have to think of, you need to think about walking around that wall at some point or digging under it or climbing over that wall. And so that is a, that's a general framework for me. It's like really sort of being creative problem solver and, uh, and, and refusing to say, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. But I will, I will provide a caveat to that. It's incredibly important to know when to quit as well because not every single pursuit is worth it. And I learned that later in life. I've, I've always been so freaking hard-headed 
And, and sometimes it took me down wrong paths and I spent way too much time down those wrong paths. And later in life, I learned that sometimes you have to say, this is sunk cost. This is not going anywhere. Let me find another path. And, uh, and I absolutely have to quit, no matter how much emotional uh, investment you've made into, uh, into that pursuit. Love that. Uh, mine's a resilience, um, creative adaptability, and also knowing when to quit. Good little formula you got. Um, no, I, I kind of agree more and especially being hardheaded and stubborn and probably every way you, you are. And I think I'm, I'm starting to slowly learn that, you know, quitting sometimes at various things is okay and realizing sunk costs, there's a lot of learning that comes from it. So um, cool. I appreciate you kind of going down that rabbit hole with me just because I find that experience, you know, most people you meet in the U.S. today, and I feel very privileged to, to live in, in the U.S. and they don't have the, the background or being an immigrant to the U.S. You know, my closest people to me were my dad's family who came from Russia and Poland, actually. Um, but that, that was my grandparents, not even my, my dad. I mean, you are an immigrant who has made your life here in the U.S. in a lot better way. And I think those early um, kind of experiences really were formative in molding you. Uh, so you, you escaped and you, you came, you're you able to get to the U.S., and then you said, you know, where did you land? Like when you first got here, where were you? And then it sounds like there was a quicker transition to the Marines. So why the Marines? And you see there were a number of reasons and I'd love to kind of explore like what happened as soon as the US and you immigrated here. For sure. So let me just kind of take a quick step back and add another component to the mindset. And this will explain why the Marines and, and what, I, what I did, you know, in like my early career. So another thing that you have to, to be resilient, you have to really believe in yourself, right? And it can be done in a healthy way and, and not so healthy, uh, like narcissism <laughs> on, on one end of the spectrum. You see a lot of entrepreneurs that, that fall uh, into that condition for that reason, because it's, it's a survival mechanism. So like early in life, you know, my, my grandparents, especially my parents, made me believe that I was special. And, uh, and the life kind of like slaps you in the face daily, says, you're not special, you're not special, you're not special. But here you are thinking, no, no, I am special. And so when, when you believe that you're special, you want to do special things, right? Uh, you want to do things that other people don't do. And so when I came to US, I, uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew I was going to do something great. I had no idea how to, how to get there. I did not know the culture. I did not know the framework, like how to play the, the game. I didn't, I didn't know the rules. And the only thing I did know is that, hey, I could join the military. And I know I, could, I can get some money for college and maybe spend four years you know, learning about the culture and how to assimilate better, right? Instead of like, you know, figuring out by myself, it's, it's like help. And another influence, uh, you know, the reason the military was an influence for me, when we were immigrating uh, to United States, we spent a lot of time in the U.S. Embassy, and I had an amazing experience with the Marines there where, uh, you know, one of them basically saved my life after, you know, there was a, an explosion, someone shot an RPG in a different side of the embassy, people were running, and anyway, so that all of that put together kind of left this impression that, hey, Marines are special, they're elite. Uh, if I did that, I'll make myself even more special because <laughs> I believe that I was. And, and then there's a pragmatic aspect. Hey, I'll get money for college. I'll have four years to figure things out. I'll be able to assimilate better. I'll, I'll be able to speak English better. I'll be, I'll, I'll be able to get skills to help me throughout life, right? And so that was the, you know, very simplistic, very reductionist, you know, view of a very complex problem that and a decision 
Uh, but generally speaking, that was that was it. Wow. Uh, it seems like you were mapping out your strategy a bit when you got here, uh, got to the States. It's like, what is the, the path of, I mean, resistance, but least resistance to help me maybe get to where I wanted to. And while it might be hard, makes the most sense. And I think the nostalgia or the special experiences uh, that you had at the embassy and then just, you know, the ability to assimilate. I mean, it sounds like a very smart decision uh, at the time and, and also well thought through. Um, what, um, so, so, so you went to the, Mar so, so, sorry, you went to the Marines and you were a part of the military. What, uh, where, what happened? You know, what did you stay there and then you went off to college or kind of how did the story unfold and, and what were, you know, once you got to the Marines, what were some of the kind of maybe key lessons that you maybe feel have molded you into your world as an entrepreneur today? Yeah. Yeah, I think Marine Corps was an amazing uh, incubator for entrepreneurship. Uh, and, and not for all the reasons people think it is. Yes, you get discipline and like you, you learn how to, you know, be even more resilient and confidence, yada, yada. But really what it demonstrated to me is that large organizations are inherently inefficient. And small teams are very efficient in doing things in a contained way. And, um, and the bigger you are, the slower you are. And, you know, one of the challenges that entrepreneurs face is this fear of saying, well, who, who am I to solve this problem? They're, they're smarter, like people with more resources, the large organizations are doing it. And so in the Marine Corps, I've learned that that is a fallacy. Uh, if you want something really bad enough, and if you really care about the problem, you probably know it better than like 90% of the experts. And, uh, and to give you an example, I, when I deployed to Iraq, um, we, uh, I deployed with an infantry unit uh, and basically kind of attached to them, you know, the patrolling Iraq and Al-Ambar province specifically where, where I was stationed. And our supply chain was pretty inefficient. The way we got water, like we had you know, water pipes that were constantly compromised. Uh, we, we flew in you know, water then from somewhere else. We, we then manage that infrastructure in a very inefficient way. And I started sort of identifying ways to improve it. And I've approached, uh, at the time as a colonel who ran that base, Al-Assad, he, he, he was like, I think of him as a mayor. And so I, I approached him and I, I pitched him on the concept and I was a corporal. Um, and uh, knowing you know, damn well that I could have been cleaning shitters for the rest of my deployment <laughs> for going outside of my, you know, my lane and, uh, and, and pretending to know what I'm talking about. And he liked it. He hired me. He pulled me out of my unit uh, into what, what Marine Corps called the mayor's cell to basically run infrastructure for 20,000 personnel uh, uh, post in the middle of a desert. And so, um, you know, the ideas I had that I thought were kind of crazy were actually not as crazy. And, uh, and, and frankly, people thought that they were good and I got a chance to implement them. And this is so empowering, like in this giant organization uh, in the middle of probably most structured experience of my life vertically integrated, you know, command chain, uh, I was able to be entrepreneurial and I was able to like create something new, fix the processes. And, I, and at that point, you know, I had the bug. I was like, I, I absolutely have to create stuff. <laughs> I want yeah. to continue creating. So cool. Uh, and so neat how you were able to take, and I think what's so interesting is you took your experience on the ground floor in a sense you went up to you know middle upper management in a sense in the marines and you said hey there's a better way to do this and it's going to impact everybody on the ground floor and 
you know, the just function of the entire organization. And I've always believed too, I mean, probably similar to you because of that experience, the best ideas are the ones that come from the ground floor because they can see the things that you can't see when you're not in the weeds of everything. And um, also the desire to make things better. So really appreciate kind of the lessons and what you're sharing. And, and just to go one question deeper, when they gave you that responsibility to, you know, this vertically integrated, highly structured organization, and said, okay, take the reins. What, what happened as a result of you being empowered to make these changes or, or make things better? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I was, uh, you know, imposter syndrome is a real thing, right? Every time you step outside of your, uh, your comfort zone and, uh, and you realize that, oh crap, I'm faking it, but I haven't made it yet. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a fake it till you make it a scenario. And so here I was, and I, I'm attached to this, uh, you know, the cell that operates the entire installation. And I, I'm liaising with like the local officers, the, you know, Iraqi officers. And so the first thing I had to figure out is, um, is how to optimize our um, water processing plant, right? And I knew nothing about that. <laughs> this is completely outside of like any, any knowledge or, or framework I, I even understood remotely. There were chemicals involved. There's like enzymatic processes. There are mechanical processes. All that stuff was broken. We blew up all the generators when we first got there to like the, disable the capabilities of the Rockies that were on the base before us. And so like all that had to be built up. And so the first thing I sort of recognized and, uh, and it was completely intuitively at the time, you know, I think about it all the time. Like, why did I think of it? Because it was the right, right call is that, hey, we shouldn't rely on these U.S. contractors that we hire, like companies like uh, Holly Burton that, uh, that have no idea how to fix any of this crap. Uh, the, the, the bid on every single contract. We should really hire these locals. And uh, because they know they've been working on this base and supposed for quite some time, they know this infrastructure now. And it was a little bit, uh, I would say counterintuitive because we initially did not prefer to hire locals because you know it's a trust issue, uh, security issue, a number of other things. And so anyway, I really like went to bat for, uh, for these local contractors who are former officers in you know, Saddam Hussein's army who are a little like uh, electrical engineers and, and so forth. And we ended up hiring these guys. And uh, I mean, they, they were amazing. They, they stood up a lot of that stuff that needed to, needed to operate. They brought in experts. They brought in these PhDs who could like fix the water pH balance and all this stuff that, uh, that it would have taken us years to figure out ourselves, you know, we were able to get it. And so that was, uh, that's probably the biggest, uh, coolest accomplishment in that experience. So neat that you were able to be so hands-on. And also I think that lesson of hiring the people faster, you know what to do and how to make things you know, tighter, more efficient. Um, you know, your job as the leader is to put those people in place. And it sounds like you're able to not only find them, but have them execute on behalf of like the challenges of what you were solving. So super cool uh, how the military really gave you your entrepreneurial, I mean, let you enact on maybe your entrepreneurial spirit a bit more and, and kind of see something come to life and give you the confidence to look back on, you know, with what you do today. So, uh, so cool to hear. Uh, tell, tell, so, Lamine, tell me a bit more uh, about after the military and w where you went, how you went about going, doing things. Was it college next? Was it business next? I mean, what, what was your path like as the Marines ended? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely college next. So I was taking classes while I was in the military when I could. And, uh, and I've accumulated, you know, some, some credit. I knew that I wanted to pursue business. 
Uh, I knew that like I had a business and entrepreneurial mindset, but really needed to like have more of a sort of a theoretical framework to, you know, put my intuition, hang my intuition on. And, uh, and so I, I studied business and I went to several different schools because of the military, because I was taking courses and then, uh, you know, ended up leaving and then graduating, getting a business degree with a focus on international business. I was fascinated. One of the things that I absolutely like fascinated me was finance as it relates to international transactions. Like that world, banking and finance and, and payments is most complex thing, one of the most complex things out there. And the way companies would leverage um, different rules, global rules to optimize for, you know, for their own benefit and their own treasuries. That's something that I wanted to do. But when I graduated, the first opportunity that came my way was actually Merrill Lynch. And, um, and Merrill Lynch was an interesting proposition. It was a, an organization, an established one. It carried uh, lots of clout, if you will, and prestige. And, you know, like, I would be lying if I didn't care about those things then. You know, I, I certainly cared about it. I was in the Marine Corps for crying out loud. And, um, but also kind of proposed an entrepreneurial path for me. I said, look, you're going to, you know, you're going to join here. Uh, you're going to manage uh, a ton of, ton of wealth for folks. Uh, you know, you can manage your own clients, your own book of business. And, uh, and, you, and you get to learn a lot about finance. And I needed to learn more about finance. I feel like despite the fact that I got my business degree, you know, I feel like I was this poor kid from Russia and who really didn't know even how to balance a checkbook at the time. Uh, I really need to understand, like, how do you build wealth? Like, I know how to create things. I know how to, like, improve things. But how do you build wealth? And, like, capital markets was just a complete mystery to me. And I studied those things. Anyway, so I accepted a role in Merrill Lynch. And lo and behold, um, comes around, uh, 2008 comes around and financial crisis hits. And so, and so I'm in the middle of a freaking storm, right? Um, where companies are failing. These companies that were like giants among giants, like Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns. And uh, our CEO at the time, John Fain, would talk to us weekly. He'd come out and be like, look guys, we're in the best position uh, on the street. We have the absolute best balance sheet, nothing toxic. <laughs> of course, we have probably the most toxic balance sheet on Wall Street. Uh, we were just like crumbling on the inside, deteriorating. And, uh, and, and then Bank of America scoops us up for, uh, you know, for pennies on a dollar before we failed. Um, and, and I was like, what the hell? The world is ending, as I understand it. Like the, this you know, concept of Wall Street was godlike right this is like the mount fucking olympus yeah uh, this is where it, it drove it was the engine for not just for the united states but for the world this is where everyone brought their money into and invested that generated wealth for folks and for me it was like that you know myth is just evaporated <laughs> in a matter of months like all of that is just a house of cards um, but, you know, I did learn some interesting lessons that, you know, banking is so incredibly important, right? This is why we have this too big to fail stuff. And so what I decided to do, I decided that, look, forget capital markets. I really want to know more about banking and payments. And that is like the most tangible part of this house of cards. Um, and I went back to school. So I went to grad school and I studied public policy with a focus on fiscal and monetary policy, just trying to understand how do federal governments or governments in general uh, raise money? Uh, how do they invest money? And what do they do with that money, right? In terms of monetary policy, how, how do we impact economic development, for instance, by printing or 
uh, constricting supply and so forth. And anyway, um, so I did that. And when I graduated, I natural path for me was public sector. So I accepted a role with US Treasury and became a federal bank regulator. Uh, so I came back after these banks with a big bad federal government bat, yeah, <laughs> baton, whatever you want to call it. It was a cool experience. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that as well. Yeah. God, you, 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 you're a man of, I think, following your curiosity and maybe intuition a bit and kind of like, okay, this happened. Now, how do I, what's the next best thing that I should, should maybe think about? And what am I interested in, right? To kind of equip myself with the experience and the knowledge and, and probably relationships to help me figure out what's next. And I think that's such a useful way to kind of navigate through life. Um, and you know, maybe I'm just, you know, Merrill Lynch, you know, may have crumbled, but it opened your eyes up to new frontiers and finance payments, you know, in such a beautiful way. Um, yeah, I, I mean, sure, I'd love to like stay on the path, you know, where, where, where I feel like we're in the business of pathfinding and you're sharing your path and journey of helping, you know, others. So, yeah, so you got to the public sector, yeah. uh, you had this newfound knowledge, and then what? So here I am, I'm a federal bank regulator. I, I have 36 nationally chartered banks in my portfolio that I examine along with a team of you know, other professionals, smart dudes and ladies. And, uh, <clears throat> and I instantly, like my mind just obviously constantly optimizing, looking for deficiencies, uh, started to sort of realize that there are a ton of deficiencies in the process. Uh, in the examination process, how frequently we do things, how we do it when we ask for you know, documents from our banks, for example, like the way we take those documents. And there's so many different ways that we're doing things that were not modern. You know, lo and behold, the federal government takes a while to modernize processes. So I started to sort of like, you know, develop little tools and calculators and things to speed things up. And, uh, and, and you know, it, 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 it was completely like, it fell on deaf ears where people said, look, status quo prevails here because uh, no one cares. <laughs> it was just, it was soul sucking in many regards. Well, there was, these, these were smart people who were seemingly um, really concerned and were rather proud of what they were doing as they were providing stability to the financial system because they ensured that banks did what they're supposed to do, right? Didn't break the rules, but also like ran their operations in the most optimal way. Like we would come in like strategy consultants and tell them how to do things better because we had a nice uh, view of all other banks. So we could tell them like without revealing which bank was doing what saying, hey, have you tried this particular strategy, right? And anyway, but at the same time, they could care less about optimizing and making things better overall as a system, like improving the processes. And I got really frustrated and I started to think about like, hey, how do I take these calculators and actually give them directly to banks and not go through the treasury? And there was just no freaking way that I could have done it. And so I decided that I'm going to find a way to build something on my own and then give it to banks, sell it to banks and make money and make a business out of it. Right. And so ultimately, that's what I did. I, I ended up uh, identifying a really unique problem. And that problem was um, inability for certain businesses in a very specific industry, uh, cannabis, legal cannabis, to acquire access to banking and payments. 
And I, I was part of the team that developed guidance uh, for, for our banks, how to engage with those particular businesses. So I knew how to get it done right and in a, in a way that was lawful. Uh, it was very difficult to execute on. And, uh, and I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit and I'm going to launch that first business. And the rest is history, right? So like the rest of it is the evolution of my entrepreneurial journey. But that was like my foray in, uh, in, in, in like true entrepreneurship on my own, uh, self-funded initially, then uh, VC funded eventually, and, uh, and building technologies that solve pretty complex problems. And it started out with, uh, with just being dissatisfied with the way regulators would examine banks and the way banks would interact with their customers. <laughs> So, so neat. Uh, and I mean, it, I think you, you get to a point like you were talking about where you, you got so fed up with the, the system and even seeing it in a more of a public uh, eye, but it also maybe give you that maybe niche lens into where is that opportunity that will allow me to break away uh, and maybe get out there on my own. Uh, and that was that your first business? Uh, the, I think token maybe is how you pronounce it. Yeah, token. token was the first official business. And you know, if you Google tokens, T O K K E N, uh, we got lots of notoriety. I and mean, we we came out with a bang um, while still in quote unquote prototype mode. We had a few clients. New York Times profiled us on the front page of Dealbook. I mean, we were like getting published and stories written all over the world just because the problem was so crazy interesting. And our solution was so out there. Um, you know, the problem was payments and banking for cannabis dispensaries. The solution was we built our own rails uh, using cryptocurrency and we would completely circumvent, you know, financial, uh, traditional financial rails. But then we build this robust oversight system. Think of it as like uh, big brother, but, you know, dispensaries were willing to give up that information just so they can have payments. And anyway, all of that together, and we had people that were former CIA operatives on my team, NSA, Palantir, which is a big uh, you know, technology company. And so just, like, just the, the whole story was so crazy. Uh, and it all came together in such a unique way that, that it was just fairly newsworthy. And so we got a ton of, ton of coverage. Um, but yeah, so Token was, uh, we had a meteoric rise in terms of traction uh, and, uh, and growth. And then uh, Donald Trump gets elected and appoints Jeff Sessions into Treasury. And the little flimsy piece of paper that made that whole industry possible, the coal memorandum, was basically ripped up and thrown away. And so, you know, we lost a lot of our partners at that point on the banking side because they were like, you know, nothing new has been released. We have no idea what was going to happen. We're just going to set this one out. And so that was a... Uh, that was a really truly the end of token. We sold the assets. Uh, we still made some money, but ultimately we never realized that dream of uh, of making it the you know the bank for the cannabis space. Mm. Wow, um, it must have been crushing, right? Because the legislation could take years of hard work and the vision to maybe not to shreds, but you know, you didn't get to realize the full potential of what you saw and what you envisioned. So that must've been, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I had my first startup, which didn't reach its full potential, you know, it never had the traction that you were discussing, but knowing that something could have been so much better and was never fully realized. I mean, that, that, that leaves a 
kind of fire in you, also some sadness, but that motivation to not let that happen again. Uh, your your entrepreneurial journey, Lamine, was was at, was able to continue um, from there. Why don't you give a um, snapshot in the next? You know, we've talked next five or ten minutes about your journey the last you know few years since what happened to Token and and how you got to what what you're doing today. Because I think that's very interesting how you've let this flame continue to rise. For sure, right, and that's part of that resilience is that you uh, you get you get checked and you have to you know stand up and carry on. Uh, what, what did Mike Tyson say that uh, you know everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face? And, <laughs> yeah, and that is very true, right? We had a plan, we got punched in the face, and uh, we no longer had a plan, so I had to come up with a new plan. Um, <laughs> and the new plan was. It, you know, plans are never like, they don't live in a vacuum, right? You don't just like, ooh, I have this idea and a light bulb goes off. It's uh, it's it's funny thing. Your brain like has all this information and then suddenly neurons connect the two disparate, you know, silos that, that are happening in your mind somewhere and then boom, you have an idea. And so that was it, right? So like with Token, we learned that man, businesses are so difficult to underwrite for financial products, like even for payments processing. Like if you need to accept credit cards as a business, online today, it's still pain in the ass to do it. Like, it, and you have squares of this world and stripes out there. Uh, but if you are non-traditional, good luck getting, you know, a square account. And so, you know, we, we while running token, I was just looking at other industries because we always thought, well, maybe token can be applicable somewhere else. And one of those things was like the gig economy. I'm like, well, gig economy, you know, every time I, every time I take a, a Lyft or Uber, I chat with my driver and they're like, oh man, I couldn't, I, I didn't qualify for a loan last year because I, I drive you know, for Uber. I also do translations on the side. My income is non-recurring, so banks really couldn't underwrite me. And I'm like, this is nonsense. Like all of that stuff is real. You're making real income, it's recorded. We can pull that data and we can then like provide a better profile for you uh, and then underwrite you because you deserve a mortgage loan like anyone else. You made $200,000 last year. And um, anyway, and so all of those ideas finally like came together, right? up with an obvious need for me to like continue on the entrepreneurial journey like that, that, that drove it all together. And I, you know, I decided that, hey, why don't we take all the learning from Token? The, the system that we're, we're building at Token, we call it Gestalt. Uh, it's, a, it's a way to, uh, to sort of conceptualize all those different disparate parts about a customer and bring it all together into one and make the, you know, the whole bit greater than uh, some of its parts, right? Uh, which is the Gestalt concept and, and Gestalt psychology. And um, in any case, and so we build that underwriting tool and we said, well, how do we access a lot of information? And, and what is it that we wanna give our customers? And the answer is pretty clear. They needed like a bank account, ability to accept payments into that bank account and to protect themselves against non-payment. So like if you are a freelancer, a consultant, gig economy worker, unless you work for a platform, if you get paid via invoices, it is, incredibly difficult to collect payments, right? Uh, most people either don't get paid or more frequently get paid very light on their invoices. And then we said, well, if we know everything about you and your client, why not create this insurance-like product that guarantees that you get paid if you use our system? So if you use us to invoice someone, you can either instantly fund that invoice and we'll give you the money up front before your customer pays you, which is a huge value add, right? You don't have to wait 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Or we can guarantee, in other words, if the client doesn't pay in a 30th or 60th day, we will. And so, um, and so that was Joust. Joust was born as 
a bank account uh, for the gig economy, really, but for really any entrepreneur that needs an ability to do business banking and also guarantee their receivables in a modern, streamlined, instant way, not like factoring that's you know outdated. I don't know if you're familiar with factoring, if listeners are, but factoring is where a small business, when they need lots of money or need money in general, they go to a factoring company or like a bank and they sell their invoices uh, that haven't been paid yet for like a steep haircut for like 30%. So if, you, if you're owed $100,000, the bank will give you 70,000 uh, and then you know they'll collect the thousand. I'm sorry, uh, 100,000, they'll collect the 70,000. And uh, in any case, and so that was Joust. And Joust was a, was a really exciting thing to run. It was really complicated things to, to, to run as well. Imagine. We bit off way more than, than we should have. Uh, that's a learning for me. Um, with a small team, we were running a national bank. Like, so we had, we had businesses in every single state. We were running a sophisticated underwriting operation for PayArmor, which was that invoicing tool. Um, and, uh, and, and we were running a merchant account operation, which is like Square. So imagine like a business bank, Square, and uh, like lending club type thing, all in one <laughs> with a team of 10. <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, I mean, unbelievable. I think with something that you were talking about with Joust is what I think you said. Um, and also, as you look at your first company token, is you attacked markets that were very specialized. You attacked the cannabis industry. You attacked the gig economy with a very specified solution within, you know, the financial space. Uh, and not that you're maybe proud of yourself on like marketing or going to market, but you've clearly like thought about these companies for a very specific group of people. So you know, use your financial and technology knowledge to kind of bring that together. Uh, in a very fast and ambitious way. So, you know, it seems like whatever you're going to do now, later down the road, you know, you, there's a, you have these incredible skill sets and kind of foresight of the industry to apply to specific verticals. And, you know, uh, I think that is an incredible proposition, you know, as a freelancer in the gig economy to say, you know, it is hard to collect payments, you know, what's a faster and better way to do that. So um, really cool. And I'm sure extremely complicated. Yeah, sure was, but it was a it was a fun ride, right? And um, you know, I I I agree with what you said. I think it's important to for folks to understand two things when you launch a business. Understand very specific pain point that you're solving, right? So so you can provide a product that that addresses that pain point. And and when you start thinking about specific pain points, you tend to narrow down your uh, your your market. You know, it's easy to like to think about consumer products like say Facebook that that is so broad and it's attractive, especially anything consumer facing is super attractive because it's sexy and because we understand it as consumers ourselves. But when you start thinking about business transactions, you have to think in a very narrow way. Otherwise, no one will buy it, right? If it's too broad, you need something very specific. And so that's one, that's, that's one thing. The other thing you have to think about is your own personal competencies. Like uh, how am I qualified to solve this problem? You don't have to be an expert, right? I, I mentioned that before. You can, you can pick up those skills, but you have to pick up those skills. You, if you're going to build something, especially something complex and technical, especially if it's regulated, you have to know this stuff well because uh, the federal government will come after you, the state governments will come after you, 
Uh, and, and frankly, like you consumers will come after you, like if you, if you screw up, right? And so that's why I've always stuck to things that I knew well uh, and, uh, and, or passionate about, and then I got to know them well. And, uh, and, and, and I think that's a, just a good formula. At least it works for me. Absolutely. Well, no, I appreciate you kind of sharing the lens in which kind of allowed you uh, to start. And, and Lamine, when we spoke last time, before we maybe round it out here and kind of come to our final question is um, your, your current company that you're at right now, that, that was able to merge with Joust. Is, is that correct? And maybe share, share that and what made you align on the vision to make a more robust product. Yeah, yeah, great question. So <clears throat> with Joust, we have always had a very broad vision. We're going to be like the platform that serves small business, right? We want to be like the all-in-one, all-inclusive platform that started on the financial side, but then expanded into all this paperwork stuff, like to help you, you know, with your compliance paperwork, all this boring shit no one wants to do as a small business owner, because you really, you know, you have plenty to do by like focusing on your business growth, customers, the product. So like all of that uh, unnecessary minutiae that you would hire an office manager to do uh, and then pay them a ton of money and then they still have to get software <laughs> to do their work, we wanted to automate for you. Um, what that meant is that we were gonna try out things on business formation side. So we ran a pilot and, uh, and, and started to provide LLCs to our customers, which was a really interesting um, you know, product that took off, but at the same time, we couldn't support it just because we were so small. And, you know, we, we then said, let's look around, instead of us doing it, let's find a partner. And a partner does this really well. And, you know, we looked around, their usual suspects like LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer. And they were just like these big companies that were outdated and the product was crap. And I'm not saying, you know, LegalZoom is, is terrible. It's just that it, it was just really cumbersome in many different ways. And, and we thought, man, we need to find something more modern. And then we came across uh, Zen Business. Uh, and so Zen Business, interestingly, <laughs> also had a very similar vision to us, but they started on the formation side and they were moving toward, you know, financial services because they want to be, they wanted to be a holistic platform as well. And so here we are, here we are uh, two companies with a similar end goal, starting at two different endpoints that are on a collision course. And, um, and you know, Ross, our, our CEO here at Zen Business, got really excited about what we've built. We got really excited about what Ross and his team have built. And we said, hey, let's just partner up. Let's, uh, let's ink a deal and let's be partners. We'll operate independently. And, uh, and we, you, know, you can resell our services. We'll integrate with you. We'll have a really tight integration. We'll resell your services. And so we did. And, uh, and that was pre-pandemic. And so we went into it with a full partnership in mind. The pandemic sets in. And both Zen Business and us thinking, we don't know what the world looks like, you know, from, uh, you know, from now on, like, we have no idea what direction this is going to take. Interestingly, this is probably the both Joust and Zen Business hit the highest growth uh, during pandemic. <laughs> this is unsurprisingly, because A, yeah. for Joust, people were freaked out about their invoices, so they signed up for Joust. For Zen Business, a lot of people got laid off and like, I want to do my own thing now. Uh, and so, but, but we didn't know that was going to happen. And so we said, you know what? We don't know what the world looks like. We want to, we want to really create the same thing. We share the mission. Let's combine forces and, uh, and do it together, right? Kind of like what PayPal did initially with X, just kind of uh, came together with two companies into one. Uh, and so, and that was it, right? So technically Zen Business, they were bigger than us. They were more mature than us. So they acquired us. 
Uh, and in this acquisition, uh, my entire team transitioned into Zen business. And what we did, we wanted to create kind of uni uniformity across board. We loved the brand that Zen business had. And we said, let's call Jow Zen business money and let's build this financial infrastructure out under the money umbrella. Um, and so I was initially in charge of money and now I'm in charge of uh, the entire product offering for Zen business and head of product there. So the, the entire suite, which is, uh, which is exactly the mission that, you know, we set out to, to, uh, to accomplish uh, at Jow's. So cool. What a story. And like, also you guys were going to probably compete at a point in time and you guys ended up merging and um, joining forces to build a more powerful unit. I mean, a lot of uh, intentionality, I think is a theme in everything you've done, doing it the right way, knowing where you want to go with forethought, but then making it happen time in and time out, even when your back's against the wall. Uh, I mean, I think on our first conversation, you were so inspiring to me and um you know just had a really good connection with you i was like we should do this and this has been such a great time together i'm going to ask you one more question and then you know maybe take the gut answer in like 20 or 30 seconds um, legacy you've you've been uh came here as an immigrant uh you know you've been able to be you know start business in the u.s and really navigate your way through a ton of incredible experiences you know, when it's all set and done with business, outside of business, uh, what do you, what do you care, you know, to be known for if, if you uh, had a wish? It's a great question. And, and my answer changes a lot because I, I care about a few things, but if I have to distill it in one answer, I would say inclusion, right? So that I care a lot about inclusion. Uh, me, my family, my friends, uh, we kept completely outside of, you know, certain tools, if you will, like banking and, and, and certain groups uh, that we couldn't, we couldn't permeate. And, you know, it's so damaging to, to a person and to, to a community and ultimately to a, to a society to do that to, to groups, because what you're creating is that you're creating a culture, uh, a culture of underperformance, a culture that has, is constantly one step or two steps behind. And, uh, and then the whole society sort of suffers. You're bringing the entire, like, whatever your unit of measurement is, like whether it's GDP or uh, or, or, or some sort of like abstract cultural uh, metric, you're bringing it down. And so for me, inclusion is incredibly important. You want to bring people in instead of keeping them out. And, uh, and, and you want to team up, right? And this is like the theme throughout my career, in, including the most recent uh, action. You want to team up with, with those around you because tide uh, you know, rises and brings up all the boats, however that saying goes. And so, so that's, that's the legacy I want to leave behind is that people think about what I've built and how it impacted lives that it, it created inclusion and access. So good. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, the only thing I'll add to that is, I mean, you have firsthand and real world and first world experience to kind of those issues. And I'm sure you've been undermined at times given your background. Uh, and we just started our diversity training, you know, here at the team and, and it's been very eye-opening, I think for us um, to think about how do, you, how do you create environments of inclusion? Uh, so I, I appreciate you kind of sharing, taking a stand for that. And uh, I'm excited to kind of see what you do next. So thanks for your time. My pleasure, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, 
head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.